Hi, this is Ben Zorns with Ellerslie Mission Society. This is part one of a three-part message given by Pastor Eric Ludy at the Church at Ellerslie in lovely Windsor, Colorado. It is our hope and prayer that this message would convict, inspire, and invigorate your pursuit of the Lord Jesus Christ. We also want you to know that should you ever have any questions or comments regarding any of the ministries here at Ellerslie, we are always happy to provide answers and receive feedback. Simply contact us at info at ellerslie.com or give us a call at 970-686-9022. We really would love to hear from you. Enjoy the message and may your faith and love in Jesus grow larger as you listen. Now, here's Pastor Eric Ludy. The power to do it. A study of biblical grace, a three-part series. The power to do it. Uh, isn't that uh, a funny way of saying it? What's funny is we almost know what it is. It's just, what is it? It's it. It's how you do Christianity. And most of us have never really been introduced to the power that actually accomplishes it. Some of us have even given up on the fact that there is a power and an enablement to be able to live out true Christianity. Well, this is a message entirely dedicated to the power that does it. Okay, and of course, I'm giving a massive hint, a study of biblical grace. The first session we're going to go through, because this will be a three-part series, the first session is called, It's So Much More. What's so much more? Uh, grace. Understand the manifold wonder of grace. Grace has been massively diminished in our day. Just the, the word itself, grace, what is it? Well, how about when people gather around a table and there's some food in the middle and someone says, let's say grace. So there's this idea that grace is a prayer or it's some offering that we give in thanks for food. You know that there's a part truth to that? That's a very small smidgen-like idea of what grace is, but a lot of us don't understand the fullness of it. There's this manifold wonder of grace, and yet that's not necessarily wrong, and I'll go into that because grace is, in a sense, an inner working of God to bring about a gratitude and a thanksgiving. Uh, the second is, you know, someone, would, someone might say that, uh, oh, well, thanks for offering me grace. In other words, you step on their toe, and you go, oh, I'm so sorry, and they go, oh, it's all right, and you go, thanks for offering me grace. And so it's sort of like overlooking a flaw, overlooking a mistake. And guess what? There is a dimension of grace that matches with that. However, there is something bigger that I want to introduce you to, and it will change your life. You see, when we grow up in the church, it's imperative that we understand what grace is. It says you are saved by grace through faith. So this is no small thing. You must understand what this is because this is, in essence, what saves you. You're in the mud. This is what lifts you out. A lot of us have this notion of grace, and this is the modern concept of it, where, and I would even say a massive diminishment of grace, even though it's a part truth, and that is that we are in the mud. We are covered with sin. We are, we are marked by the defeat of this world, and God comes up because he is gracious and puts his arm around us and says, oh, but I love you. I love you in your mud-caked state. Now, does God love us in our mud cake state? Yes, but we have this notion that God leaves us in a mud cake state and hugs us, and the hug is known as grace. And yet, that is not true. God loves us too much to leave us in a mud cake state. Grace is that which wraps itself around us while we're in the mud and lifts us out of it, washes us clean. 
sets our feet upon a rock and then sticks power within us to live a life that otherwise would be impossible. So let's go through the four fantastic ingredients to this amazing word. First of all, when you say the word grace in the Greek, God seemed to choose. The Holy Spirit chose a word known as charis in the Greek, and it has different nuance to it, which makes it such a vibrant word, almost like it's elastic and it can spread over quite a long, uh, a big territory. But first of all, one of the things that many of us recognize with it is it's free and unmerited. In other words, you don't do something or some work or some grand effort to gain it. A blessing of magnificent proportions, it's a gift from God to the undeserving. This is an aspect of grace. It's not the full picture of it. It's also, number two, and this is what Paul introduces, because when someone who spoke Koine Greek, say you're in Alexandria, Egypt, and you were speaking Koine Greek, you wouldn't necessarily understand this dimension. This is what Paul brings to the table. The Holy Spirit, leading him along, takes this word that everyone would know in the common language and says, but... Look how I can use it in accordance with the Spirit of God to enunciate something that is only found in heaven. It's power to do that which would otherwise be impossible. It renovates the inside of a man, and it transforms the outside of a man. So we're going to go back uh, to these four in just a bit here, but just to give you a quick overview. We have a problem, and that is that we live in a generation, ironically, it's been 2,000 years of this, But just like Satan always has an agenda to undermine the word of God, he also seems to have targeted very specific things in the Christian machinery. And so he's always going after key words, and if he can implode them or distort them or pervert them, he undermines the very integrity of how Christianity works. Three things that he oftentimes goes after, grace, faith, and the Holy Spirit. I mean, just think through those three terms in your lifetime. Three of the most abused, perverted ideas in Christianity. Why would the enemy spend so much time on those three? Because those three make up the mechanics of how we showcase love to the world. It's like we're supposed to demonstrate love. You will know my disciples by this stuff. However, without these three operative in your life, you can't show Jesus Christ. Grace is of the utmost importance, and so there's always been a distortion of it. Listen to what it says in Jude. For there are certain men crept in unawares. They crept into the church. They creep into environments like this who were before of old ordained to this condemnation. These men are ungodly men is what it says. And so what I'm about to define is the behavior of ungodliness when it enters into the church and begins to attach itself to the ideas that God has enunciated in his word. And what did these ungodly men do? They turned the grace of our God into lasciviousness. Sorry to give you such a big word. I'll explain it in just a second. And denying the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. There's something very, very serious that these ungodly men do when they creep in unawares into the body of Christ and take this word and turn it into something that it is not. When you turn the grace of God into, oh, God overlooks all this stuff. You know what lasciviousness is? Let me give you a quick Uh, Beware of the ungodly agenda of turning the grace of our God into lasciviousness. That's a good old King James word. And so I gave you, you in every translation, they have a different word for it. But let's read them. Into lewdness, into a license for immorality, into sensuality, into licentiousness. The best way of describing it, James Bond had a license to kill. Grace as twisted and perverted by ungodly men says you have a license to sin. 
You see, God died on the cross so that you can go on sinning. And he will always cover it so you can keep living according to the flesh and God will just overlook it and cover it over with his quote-unquote grace. Uh, That is actually not what grace is. And yet we have the same ungodly men that have crept in unawares into the modern church of our day and have twisted the idea of grace into exactly that. In fact, even as I say it, some of you are like, huh, that's not what it is? Because that's what we've been trained. We've been trained that it's God overlooking sin. God somehow can bypass the fact that he's a just God and deal with our sin because of his grace. And yet, though God has given us a gift, and though it is unmerited, and though it is a incredible expression of his mercy and his kindness. It is not an overlooking. It is a proper dealing with our sin. The snuggle of grace. I typically call it the hug of grace. But this is this milk toast notion that God comes down from heaven and just wraps his arm around these mud-encrusted creatures known as us and overlooks everything in our life when in actuality that very sin is what has kept us away from him for you know, since time immemorial back in Adam and Eve's day. Sin is still grotesque in heaven, and God does not condone it, and he does not endorse it. And grace is not some creative means by God saying, oh, it doesn't matter anymore. Sin is still grotesque in heaven. Grace is a means by which God properly deals with this grace to set us free from the very sin itself. So the snuggle of grace, it's when we take one ingredient and forget the other three. Do you remember the four amazing or fantastic ingredients that I mentioned? If you just take ingredient number one, oh, it's a free gift. We didn't deserve it. There's nothing we could ever do to deserve it. This is a true ingredient in grace. But when you take that one ingredient and leave out the other three, you end up with a distorted version of grace. This past week when we were talking to the students, we were talking about the recipe for bread. And we mentioned the ingredients, you know, flour, water, oil, uh, and then someone said sugar, and someone else rose their hand and said, honey, and we had some debate over what was the best way of, of making it, uh, yeast, these various ingredients. Well, imagine that we had ingredients for grace, and it was very similar. If you, if you leave out key ingredients, say you had four ingredients to bread and you left out three, how's your bread going to look? You have a pile of salt there, or a little pile of flour. It's not actually bread. That's the same thing that happens to grace. It's not that what is being said is false. It's that it's missing that which fully makes it true. It's missing the other ingredients. And that's what's so dangerous about modern grace, is that it's not that it's completely false what is being said, it's that it's missing what makes it fully true. So what exactly is grace? Grace is an action, a superheroic action, but it is more than an action. Grace is a power, an extreme power, but it is more than a power. Grace is a mercy, an extreme mercy, but it is more than a mercy. Grace is a kindness, an unmerited kindness, but it is more than kindness. Grace is a virtue, an exemplary virtue, but it is more than a virtue. Grace is an historic event, an event that is central to all history, but it is more than a historic event. Grace is a gift, an unspeakable gift, but it is more than a gift. Grace is a work, a legal work of atonement, propitiation, justification, redemption, forgiveness, and adoption, but it is more than a legal work. Grace is a life, a quickening, transforming life, but it is not an impersonal life. Grace is more than an action, a power, a mercy, a kindness, a virtue, an event, a gift, or a legal work. Grace is a person. Isn't that an amazing thought? The more you study scripture, the more you begin to realize that God isn't made up of these impersonal parts and vibes. It's him. He is the one that saves. You are saved by grace through faith. 
And so when you say, well, I'm saved just by a kindness. No, you're saved by a person who is marked by kindness. You see, grace is very personal. You are saved by believing in the person of Jesus Christ, who just happens to be the enunciation of grace. So grace is Jesus Christ, the loving action, the unstoppable power, the extreme mercy, the unmerited kindness, the exemplary virtue, the unspeakable gift, and the perfect rescuing work of God upon the cross, the historic event of all historic events. Grace is the abundant life of God made available in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus is grace. You see, when we begin to discuss grace, we are talking about something that is the fulfillment of of all righteousness. You know that God has always been grace? We oftentimes think of grace as something that just sort of emerges, you know, when Jesus Christ came and finally solved the bad attitude of God in the Old Testament. God was sort of a meanie back then. And then Jesus Christ came and said, God, you know, I think we've been getting this all wrong. And so he converted the nature of God into being a kind sort, to being merciful and loving. You know that God has always been the way he is? And Jesus Christ fully revealed the person of the Father, the way that God, the God of the Old Covenant was perfectly revealed in Jesus Christ. We see him more clear than we've ever seen in Jesus Christ. And guess what? God has always been a God of all grace, but, but guess what? We were cut off from it. Jesus Christ has made a way for us to return unto the fullness of that grace, that grace that saves us. Grace in the Old Testament is the foreshadow of the unmerited gift to come. Did you know that grace is in the Old Testament? It's hanging out in the pages of Scripture. There it is. There's grace. Well, there's grace. You see, it is a, it's an idea that God plants into his Scripture that we would anticipate the fullness of it when it came. So it's the foreshadow of the unmerited gift to come. Who is that unmerited gift? It's Jesus. So in the Old Testament, we have a word, and it's pronounced chen. You have to get the, old, the, the Hebrew sound. But it's chen, favor and acceptance, unmerited favor. So when you're in Sunday school class and some, you know, your teacher brings up grace, this is oftentimes what they'll give you the, the definition of. They'll give you the definition of the Old Testament word chen, and they'll say it's unmerited favor. Well, is that wrong? No, it's not wrong. It's just not the fullness or the fulfillment of what grace is in the New Testament. You see, grace isn't just a favor given, a gift it is, but that gift is a person. That gift is Jesus Christ. There is an unmerited favor that is coming. The Old Testament hearkens to it. It says, watch, he will come to you. He will be God with you. He will be born of a virgin. He will come forth out of Bethlehem. It gives great detail of this grace that will come, that will rescue, that will be the power to enable them to live. Surely he scorneth the scorners, but giveth grace unto the lowly. Here we see it in Proverbs 3. Thus saith the Lord, the people which were left of the sword found grace in the wilderness, even Israel, when I went to cause him to rest. And then in Zechariah, who art thou, O great mountain, before Zerubbabel? Zerubbabel is of the lineage of the, the kings of David. So Jesus is related to Zerubbabel. And Zerubbabel rebuilt the temple of God. Remember Jesus who said, tear down this temple and I will rebuild it in three days? He's the rebuilder of the temple. He's a Zerubbabel. And so what it says in Zechariah is, Who art thou, O great mountain, before Zerubbabel? Thou shalt become a plain. And he shall bring forth the headstone thereof with shoutings, crying, Grace, grace unto it. 
And then finally in Zechariah 12, and I will pour out, I will pour upon the house of David and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication. And they shall look upon me whom they have pierced, and they shall mourn for him as one mourns for his only son, and shall be in bitterness for him as one that is in bitterness for his firstborn. All four of those are foreshadows of a person named Jesus Christ. All of these scriptures in the Old Testament, when it's talking about grace, it's hinting. It's talking about a grace that will come, a grace that is very personal, a grace that comes in the shape of a man named Jesus Christ. So now let's look at grace in the New Testament. The person of grace strides onto the stage of time and reveals to us the power of grace. So our word in the Greek, in the Koine Greek, is charis, the unique makeup of the word. This is a word with four different parts to it. So the first I want to introduce you to is a gift. Grace truly is a gift, and it is an undeserving gift. That is part of what the word, even in the Greek, would mean. It's unmerited and unearned, a favor offered, an act of mercy, hallmarked by sacrifice on the part of the giver, and rescue redemption on the part of the recipient. So ingredient number two is the power to do it. This is also a part of what we see grace as in the New Testament, is that it is enablement to actually accomplish something. And we will say that something is the impossible life that you on your own cannot do. And number three is an inward springing upward. This idea is actually, it comes from the root for Cairo, is where charis comes from. And you know what Cairo means? To rejoice, to be moved with gratitude, thanksgiving, and joy. The idea of joy in the New Testament is a springing upward. So there is something, and it takes place in the inner man, that actually shoots us upward. Heaven? Hell. Grace shoots us upward. It carries us heavenward. It actually is marked by an idea of joy or a lifting upward. So charis contains this nuance of something that enables joy, thanksgiving, and gratitude within. So let's hold hands and let's say grace. That's where this idea comes from. It's gratitude. It's thanksgiving. It's the welling up of God within us where we say, thank you. Thank you for what you've done. And number four, an outward shine, a loveliness, a glow of beauty. Oh, she's such a a woman of grace. And that's where that term comes from. It's actually demonstrated in the external by how someone lives. Now, what I've just given you is the gospel. Jesus Christ was given And he literally comes and dwells within us and changes us from the inside out. That is what grace does. It actually is the working dimension of Christianity. You cannot be a Christian, a functional Christian, that demonstrates to the highest heaven, the lowest hell, the nature of Jesus Christ, unless you have it. Grace is the power to do it. So charis also is leveraged in the Greek language to show something that is lovely, appropriate, right, and agreeable. The four fantastic ingredients. So here's just a summary of where we're at so far. It's free and unmerited, a blessing of magnificent proportions, a gift from God to the undeserving. It's also a power to do that which would otherwise be impossible. For those of you that are saying, well, wait a minute. If you're saying in the Koine Greek that this wasn't the normal use of it, then how in the world can you put it in your list, Eric? I'm saying I'm putting it in my list because Paul defines it all throughout the New Testament according to definition number two up there. And that's what I'm going to show you in the other subsequent sessions that we have. It renovates the inside of a man and it transforms the outside of a man. The many shades of grace. In 1 Peter 4, it says, And every man hath received the gift. Even so minister, as every man hath received the gift, even so minister the same one to another as good stewards 
of the manifold grace of God. You see, grace is a big concept in Scripture. We oftentimes take one dimension of it or one color of it. It's actually a variegated color scheme. It's sort of like a rainbow. And if we just took the color red, would we be wrong? No. But if I said rainbow color, what would that mean? Well, it means uh, red, orange, yellow, green, indigo, violet is what it means. Biv, blue, 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 indigo, violet, Roy G. Biv. And the same is true with the grace of God. Oftentimes we only have one color and we're like, oh, this is grace. Well, it's not that it's not grace. It's that it's only a part of the manifold picture of grace. So what's amazing about God is he has revealed himself and yet we cannot even fathom with our human mind how grand he is. And so what he does is he compiles himself into a picture known as Jesus Christ. And yet Jesus Christ shows the complexities of the manifold wonder of who God is. And so it's like an accordion that you can stretch out. And the more you stretch it, the more all you see are these inner, inner folds. You're like, oh, that's a part of him too. That's a part of him too. But God oftentimes just shows us one area or revelation of who he is at a time because he knows how we function. We can't handle more than that. And so as you go through the manifold wonder of grace, it's sort of like stretching out this grand picture, which then you can close up and just call it one word, charis, grace. This is what saves you people. This is what has done it. You are saved by this through faith. And so what is the this? What is this grace? So here's how it's used in scripture. The God of all grace, the gospel of grace, the gift of grace in Christ, the dispensation of grace, which means the entrustment of the sacred passing along, like, here you go. And it's like, it, it ensures the handoff, like the baton. It's like, you got it? I got it. It's an entrustment of grace, the minister of grace, the work of grace, empowering grace, the throne of grace, the spirit of grace, the purpose of grace. So unlocking the manifold wonder of grace. Let's go through each one of these. The God of all grace, as it says in 1 Peter 5. Jesus, or grace incarnate, he lived by grace, revealed the power and perfection of grace, purchased us the access to the throne of grace, and then ultimately will make every knee bow before the God of all grace. Jesus is the God of all grace. He, man- he manifests to us, he brought to us grace in all its forms, in all its beauty, in all its complexity, in all its simplicity. He brought it to us. He's the carrying device. He is grace. And so God so loved us that he gave us an unspeakable gift. He gave us himself, and in him is all grace made manifest. So how about the gospel of grace? When you preach the gospel, what gospel are you given? Well, you need to be given the gospel of grace, but that isn't the gospel that says, oh, God loves you so much in your mess and your your sin that he comes and just snuggles with you. You see, the gospel of grace goes beyond just the snuggle of God. It's the suffering, the cross, the burial, the resurrection, the ascension, and the dispensation. Did you know that God has broken through and he has made a way for you to be a carrier of this grace? All grace is meant to abound in you, to change you, to change the inside of you, and then to change the outside of you. You're not meant to live as you always have lived up to this point, but to live different. How? By grace, you're supposed to live different. The gift of grace in Christ That which was legally purchased on the cross, it was a gift of grace. That which clothes the sinner in the legal righteousness of the person of grace and makes a way for them to access the throne of grace in order to partake of grace for help 
in time of need. As it says in 2 Timothy, who hath saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began. So when you enter into Christ, you have access to this grace. And by this grace, you live. It's available in Christ. Thou therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is where? It's in Christ Jesus. And so imagine that it's a cold winter day. And the lake house is the building next door. And it's always right around 70 degrees. And it's temperature controlled in there. And you're cold. Well, you have access to that great temperature on a, at a day when it's zero degrees outside, sleeting or, or, or snowing, whatever it is outside. You have access to that climate where? In the lake house. That's the same that is true with all the grace of God is made available to us in Christ. And so what, you, what must you do? You must enter into the lake house to get it. And when you do, you find that you instantly have access to the realities of temperature controlled air. It's yours. It's available to you in the lake house. The same is true. Be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. So, hey, you have the grace. Walk in it. Be strong in it. It's yours. Utilize it. So now the dispensation of grace. Dispensation is one of those huge words that intimidates a lot of people. It simply means the sacred entrustment or that which is given to the saints to carry out the assignment of bringing the gospel of grace to the nations and to thus reveal the glory of the person of grace Jesus Christ. God has said, look, all that work that I did on the cross was so that I could, I could bequeath to you something. I could entrust you something. It's a deposit. It's an earnest of our inheritance. And he gives us grace. It's known as the Holy Spirit to enable us to live a life that otherwise would be impossible. Here you go. The minister of grace. This is where you come in. You know that Paul was a minister of grace? You know what you're supposed to be? A minister of grace. He's the chosen steward, the one entrusted with the talents of grace. You know that all the the parables are talking about grace? It's talking about the way the kingdom of heaven works. You know how the kingdom of heaven works? What its monetary system is? It doesn't have dollars and cents. It has grace. And so when it's talking about a man who is handling his resources well or his talents well, it's not just talking about money. It's talking about that which he's been entrusted. He has been bequeathed grace. How are you handling that grace? Be strong in it. Hey, what are you doing? Are you, don't let that grace slip away. That is precious. So how you handle the grace is how the minister of grace functions. So we have been entrusted with the talents of grace, the ones responsible to dispense the grace in all its manifold wonder under the glory of the God of all grace. And then there's something known as the work of grace, which we see in Galatians 5. It's the fruition of grace, laboring in the life of a believer in Jesus Christ. Remember how I said grace changes the outside of a man? You will know my disciples by what? Fruit. There is an evidence on the outside of their life. What is the fruit of the Spirit? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. You see, there is something that grace will do if grace is truly present in you and you are functioning in it. Well, guess what? You're going to show it in your life. And that's what this is. This is the fruition of grace, laboring in the life of a believer in Jesus Christ. Such grace produces love. Joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. The work of grace is the revelation of the person of grace that all the universe might behold his glory. Empowering grace. Now, I'm going to spend most of the remainder of our time together dealing with this exact kind of grace. And it's not just any kind. It is sort of an enunciation of the whole, but empowering grace It's the enabling power of God to carry out the impossible errands of God on planet Earth. I don't know if you've read the Bible to the point where you understand, I can't do that. Well, you actually expect me to do that, God? 
And God says, yes, of course. I gave you grace in order to do it. It's not, he's not asking us, do you have it in your own pocket to be able to afford a, you know, a $10 billion assignment? It's like, I don't, I don't even have a penny. He says, well, you have grace, don't you? You have everything you need for life and godliness. And so we say, yeah, I can do it. Well, how do you do it? By grace. We function after God's ability, not after ours. We don't dig in our own pockets. I can't do that. We dig in his pocket. He has made it available to us at the cross. The throne of grace, one of my favorite places. Okay, my favorite place. How in the world am I going to outpace that one and say, oh yeah, I have another spot that I really love too. The throne of grace. The holy of holies, the place of God, the seat of his presence and kingly authority, the shadow of the almighty, the place for help in time of need. The place of the person of grace. Where does the person live? He lives in the throne of grace and we have access unto the throne of grace. Just listen. Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. By the way, for those of you that haven't figured this out, a time of need is every moment of every day. So you might as well just get used to this. Just live there. Don't say, okay, thanks. That will take care of this situation. Then you leave and suddenly you're like, you know what? I think I need more grace. And so then you come back and that's why Jesus says, you know, let's just make an arrangement. How about you abide with me? Why don't you just live here? Live here with me because this isn't making any sense for you to leave and come back and leave and come back. You need this in order to function and do what you're called to do on this earth. And we have access unto that place known as the throne room of grace in the person of Christ, in the clothing of Christ, and his work of grace has clothed us in order that we might enter the throne room of grace and receive all the grace that is needed to live out this life that otherwise would be impossible to live. The spirit of grace, the deposit, the earnest, the guarantee of the promise, otherwise known as the Holy Spirit of God. Grace and spirit form the life of Jesus Christ imparted. So Jesus Christ has come. The person of grace, the unmerited gift. We did not deserve what he does. But he pours out his life. And we, the recipients, are receiving a free gift. And yet, when we turn and believe upon that free gift, we enter into the person of grace. And the work of grace begins to have effect upon us. And we are clothed in his grace in order that we might enter into the throne room of grace to see the God of all grace who wants to bequeath to us a grace that will live inside of us and enable us to actually produce the fruit of grace in our life. That grace that is given us when Jesus says, ask the Father, ask the Father in my name. What are we asking for? The Holy Spirit. We're asking for the enunciation, grace in spirit form, to live within us and to animate these bodies so that they function as they ought to function. The purpose of grace. So why is God doing all this? What is grace up to? You know that grace has has an end game? Grace is doing something that the name of our Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in you, and you in him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace has an end game, and that is that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in us, all of us together. God wants to take his church and make this church the manifold revelation of his wisdom unto the highest heaven and the lowest hell, that all the heavenlies would see it. That's who God is. He has chosen us as his vehicles. This is what grace does. The preparations for grace. The law was, also, was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ. You ever heard of the statement law and grace? Law was given as a means of showing us our need for grace. You see, we were cut off from grace in the garden. There were two cherubims that were set up to guard the tree of life. 
lest we eat of that fruit and live forever in that fallen state. And so we were cut off from it, but Jesus Christ has made a way for it. The law shows us. It says, this is how you ought to live. Now go do it. We're like, I I can't live this way. Well, you must, unless you can show me a perfect life. You can have no part with me. What's God saying? What's God doing? He's teaching us. Are we hearing? Are we heeding the instruction? God, I can't, I can't do that. He goes, I know. But I can. And I will do it for you. And that is grace. It is a gift. It is unmerited. God is going to come. And he is going to do a work. And that work will be on our behalf. He will take the hit. He will take the penalty. He will suffer for us. It is something that is undeserving, but it is a labor. It is the labor of God on our behalf. It is power to accomplish an ends. And that power was not just 2,000 years ago revealed in the person of Jesus Christ. That power lives today. Grace is not a past tense idea. It is a present tense reality, for he ever lives to make intercession for us. So the law was our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. Look what I did. I put parentheses around this, just so you know, this is my little addition here. The law was a schoolmaster to bring us to the power to do it. You see, the power to do it is grace. It leads us and prepares us that we need grace. That is what saves us. The law cannot save us. Being under the law only subjects us to the penalty. Because if you try and keep one little bit of the law, you must keep the whole thing. We must state before the law, I'm guilty. I cannot fulfill this. I am saved by grace alone. It is his work, his fulfillment of the law, his perfect righteousness. That is where I put my confidence. He can do it. He is the power to do it. The name Jesus, Yahweh, which is Jehovah, which is the name I am. So Moses at the burning bush says, who am I to say sent me? And God says, I am that I am. It's a very strange statement. And yet that is part of Jesus' name. The I am that I am, Jehovah, Yahweh, both of the same, same name. And Adonai in the Aramaic, it says the same thing, Lord, all caps. Those are euphemisms so that the Jews wouldn't accidentally say the unspeakable name of God. For one of the first commandments is, Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. And that is Jehovah. They should never take that name wrongly. And so we have that name, the unspeakable name, combined with a verb to save. He does it. That is his name. He has done it. He will do it. And he will always do it. What is the do it? What is he doing? He is doing the work that we cannot do on our own. It's called grace. Jesus is grace. It's even in his name. The I am will do it. So there's various ways you could say the name Jesus. The I am has done it. That would be a perfectly great way to say the name Jesus. The I am is doing it. That would be perfectly correct. The I am will always do it. The one who was, the one who is, and the one who is to come. That's the concept of the I am. The one that is, the one that was, and the one that is to come did it, does it, and will always do it. Amen. That's what we believe. You are saved by grace through faith. So what are you believing? That. That's what you believe. You believe that that saves you. That grace 
saves you, when you turn unto him and say, he did it, he does it, and he will always do it. You're not just turning to any old fable, you're turning to the king of the universe, the creator of the universe, who has actually indeed done it. It is finished. The power to do it revealed. And this is going to finish up our first session, and I'm just going to bait you for the upcoming sessions. You see, the power to do it. The Hebrew culture is hearing about this one who will come. And Isaiah, in that last agonizing stretch of his book, is after he brings so much judgment in the first 39 chapters, he begins to unveil the grace that is to come. And you begin to hear this heart-rending picture of a Messiah who will suffer on their behalf. And he begins to enunciate and animate and put flesh to this picture of one to come. He's coming. The power to do it is coming. The one who will accomplish it is coming. And so what do we see? Well, first of all, what is the New Testament? He's come. The power to do it has done it. Grace has been made manifest. Grace has been expressed. The floodgates are open. The dispensation has come. The the entrustment has been given. The way has been made under the throne of grace. It's open. Well, that tree was cut off. There were flaming cherubim in front of it. We can't eat of the tree of life. The way has been made available. It's open. Come and eat freely of the tree. So the power to do it is revealed. Now remember, we're talking about grace. For those of you that are used to hearing about grace as merely being the hug of God to overlook our sin, there is nothing in Scripture that will support such a notion, which will shock you. We're going to go through what Scripture says about grace, and you'll start to say, what? You even know these scriptures. That's what's incredible. It's like, I know that scripture. I memorized that scripture. We'll start believing the scripture. This is what God says about grace. So, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. How is Paul what he is? By the grace of God. His grace and his grace, which was bestowed upon me, was not in vain. But listen to this. But I labored more abundantly than they all. Yet not I, but the grace of God, which was with me. What labored? Paul, the greatest picture of a man of God outside of Jesus Christ that we could even come up with. How did he labor? Everything he did was done by a power that was working in him. You need to become familiar with this power that works in the saints of God to carry out a life that will resemble Paul's. You want to live like that? Don't dig in your own pockets and try and find it. You're not going to find it there. We're going to show you where to find it. And that's what the remainder of this message will be. Thank you so much for listening to part one of this three-part message by Pastor Eric Ludy, pastor at the Church at Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. Please feel free to make copies of this message, but do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without express written permission. If you have any questions, comments, or just need more information about Ellerslie, please visit our website at www.ellerslie.com. Again, that website is www.ellerslie.com. For Ellerslie Mission Society, this is Ben Zorns cheering you on as Christ cultivates his set-apart life within you.